Well, it's been a good service tonight. Trust you've been blessed and a good weekend. And, of course, yesterday we had the, the joy of many of us to witness two young people devoting their lives, covenanting their lives, promising their lives to each other till death do them part. It was a wonderful day, a wonderful ceremony. One of the phrases, if you were here and you were able to enjoy that, one of the things that they said as they made their vows to each other, one of the phrases they used was refusing divorce as an option. Now there might be some who would think, why do you have to say that? I mean, why make a big, make a big deal out of that? Why do you got to do that? Well, one of the key passages in answering that question would have to include Malachi chapter 2. And it's been quite some time since we started this study and just some various things in our church calendar and we've enjoyed those and we're getting back now to our study in the book of Malachi, the final book of the Old Testament. The final revelation of God to His people, the nation of Israel, they don't fully understand it, I don't believe, but God knows that this is the final word. This is it. We were kind of joking around about this in Sunday school, you know, dads, when we sort of step in, you know, a little bit of maybe a little back and forth, things get a little bit snippy, and we say, enough, the last word, right? Malachi is God saying, enough, last word. And we've already seen the chippy nature of the conversation. There's going to be a little bit more of that in our text tonight. But this book is God saying, this is the final word. One more final word before 400 years. I remind you that God's been dealing consistently and patiently with long-suffering for hundreds of years now with His people. But this, right here, is followed by 400 years of silence. No more revelation. No more word. No new word from God. They had the old stuff, alright? And that was, that was enough to give them direction. But no new revelation from God until the voice of one crying in the wilderness, John the Baptist, would come on the scene. And so for us, as we approach this book, it's very helpful for us to understand what were the errors that we see in, in God's people. Because I don't know about you, I don't want to be separated from God. Amen. I don't want to be separated from, from God's direction, from God's wisdom, from God's leadership in my life. I, I don't want to go through religion and for the heavens to just be silent. We've experienced some of that at times, right? Where it just sort of, ah, our relationship with God is not all that it, should, should have been, and it's just flat. We're not hearing from God, and I don't enjoy those times. I don't think you enjoy those as well. So we want to be very careful to, to note the errors that we see in this book and do our best to avoid them. God has dealt with, and we've looked at um, the, the initial opening of the book in chapter 1, and then almost immediately He begins addressing the priests and their specific function, their, their specific place, in the nation of Israel. God finishes that. We did that. We, we went through that in our last message in this book. And now we pick up in verse number 10, where God is making a, 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 a general observation, a general rebuke towards the nation of Judah. He addresses them specifically in verse number 11. Judah, Israel, Jerusalem. This was something that was going on that was characteristic of the entire Nation. It was pervasive in Judah at this time. We'll see an interesting point because the error that was taking place went all the way to the privacy of the home, all the way into that private place, that place where you like to be comfortable, that place where you like to let your hair down, but the home is still a place where you have a responsibility before God. The home is not the place where you escape that responsibility. It's still there. And so God is directly relating 
his relationship with his people, with how they were conducting themselves, how they were treating each other in the home. And you'll notice there's a word that is repeated. See if you can pick up on it as we read the text. We'll start in verse, verse 10 and pause for the evening in verse 16. Look at verse 10. Have we not all one Father? Hath not God created us? Why do we deal treacherously every man against his brother? By profaning the covenant of our fathers. Judah hath dealt treacherously, and an abomination is committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah hath profaned the holiness of the Lord, which he loved, and hath married the daughter of a strange God. The Lord will cut off the man that doeth this, the master and the scholar, out of the tabernacles of Jacob, and him that offereth an offering unto the Lord of hosts. And this have ye done again, covering the altar with tears, with weeping, and with crying out, insomuch that he regardeth not the offering any more, or receiveth, receiveth it with good will at your hand. Yet ye say, Wherefore? Because the Lord hath been witness between thee and the wife of thy youth, against whom thou hast dealt treacherously, yet is she the, thy companion and the wife of thy covenant. And did he not make one? Yet he had the residue of, of the Spirit. And wherefore one? That he might seek a godly seed. Therefore take heed to your spirit, and let none deal treacherously against the wife of his youth. For the Lord God of Israel saith, that he hateth putting away. For one covereth violence with his garment, saith the Lord of hosts. Therefore take heed to your spirit, that ye deal not treacherously. <coughs> Heavenly Father, would you bless this time this evening in your word. May you just guide and direct us. Lord, we come and hope, hopefully we, we ask that you help us to come without an agenda, without preconceived notions. That we would just allow your word to guide and direct our thoughts. That we might glean what you want us to glean tonight and even the application for our own lives. Would you speak to us, Lord? We don't deserve that, but we know that you desire to direct and guide and have input in our lives. And so I pray that you would use your word to meet some needs, even in this congregation tonight. And we ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, did you catch the, the word five times? The word treacherously. You have dealt or you're dealing treacherously in just seven verses. It's just like, this word over and over and over and over again. The word treacherously means deceitfully. It means faithlessly. It's also translated as transgressing or the idea of, of being unfaithful. Treacherously. I like how uh, Webster defined it in his dictionary. He said, the word treacherously means violating allegiance or violating faith that's been pledged. And here's one that, that, that really underscores what the word means. It, it means betraying a trust. Betraying a trust. And then for those of you who just absolutely love big words that we hardly ever use, here's one. Treacherously means perfidiously. If you knew what that meant, bravo to you. It just means deceitfully, all right? Um, dealing treacherously. In our, in our text, in the, in the context, we, we take that definition, and this is sort of my definition as we're going through in the context of what God is saying. The idea of dealing treacherously is a dishonest violation of a covenant. A dishonest violation of a promise. And this treacherousness, this dealing treacherously was going on in the home. So we want to talk about tonight treachery at home. Treachery at home. This is the worst kind. It goes down to the heart of our, our very being, who we really are, who God's people in this case, who they really were. What was going on in the home exposed the reality. Oh, there still was a religious worship side. We're going to look at that in just a moment. There still was an outward display of church because they're supposed to do church. That's what a good family's supposed to do. But at home, the mask comes off. The reality takes place. And that is a, a, a sad truth. That we are who we really are at home. We are 
who we really are deep down inside, that's who we are at home. We see this treachery, the treachery at home in two different areas, but they're not distinct. And, and I, I, I struggle with whether or not to separate this passage and, and kind of make them distinct, but they're actually one. And, and verse 14 specifically ties the thoughts together along with verse 13. They, they really go together. So they're kind of two separate things, but they flow together as we'll see. And the first treachery that we see is the idea of treachery in marriage. And remember, the, 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 um, the definition is violating a covenant. And specifically, uh, God through His messenger Malachi is going to deal with the, the, the idea of violating the covenant of Israel. The covenant of Israel. He mentions this at the end of verse number 10. Profaning the covenant of our fathers. You see, in Israel, there was a promised relationship between God and His people. This promised relationship was a privilege. God chose the nation of Israel and He said, I want to use you in a special way. I want to use you to bring My Word to this world. I want to use you so that I will bring the Messiah, the Savior of mankind, into this world. And I want to have a special relationship with you. This was a privilege. It was, it was, a, it was a covenant. A special relationship between God and His people. A couple things brings this out and or, or, or brings this idea out in verse number ten. He says, "Have we all? Have we not all one father?" And of course, that's a rhetorical question. Yes, if you're the nation of Israel, yes, we all have one father. Hath not God created us? Why do we deal treacherously every man against his brother by profaning the covenant of our fathers? They had a special relationship with God as their creator and the father of their nation. I know they would probably trace that back to Abraham, but it was God who chose Abraham. It was God who said to Pharaoh, you let my people go. You're abusing my son in Egypt, and you need to let them go. See, God was the father of His people. They shared a special relationship with God, and they shared as a result, as a a nation, as a people, they shared a special relationship with each other. That's why he mentions, why do you deal treacherously every man against his brother? You have a, a special relationship in this covenant. God chose you for a, a purpose, and he wants to, to use you for that purpose, but instead, you're violating that promised relationship. You're violating the promise, uh, uh, the, the special relationship, not only with God, but also with each other. So that was the privilege that they had. And of course, He already is introducing the main thought and into verse number 11 as well. Not only do we see privilege, but we also see a transgression. Judah hath dealt treacherously. This is verse 11. And an abomination is committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah hath profaned the holiness of the Lord, which he loved, and hath married the daughter of a strange God. Part of the covenant relationship between Israel and God. This was a a promise. God made them a promise, and they were to make God a promise. There was was a a two way street. Part of that promise, the part of the obligation of this covenant was for God's people to be obedient to God's commands. He gave the law, and the law, not just the moral law, but extensively the the law to the nation as a whole, and then even to those, those priests, the Levites. And, and, and how worship was to be conducted and how, how worship was to be done. There was a, a, an obligation to keep God's commandments. God was promising them a nation, a land, a place to call home. God was promising His blessing. But they had an obligation as well. And that was to be obedient to God's commands. One of those commands, among many, was Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 3 and 4. We won't take the time to turn there. You see it there on the screen. It just it says... Basically, neither shall thou make marriages with them. Thy daughter shalt thou not give unto his son, nor his daughter shalt thou take unto thy son. Well, why is this, God? Well, they will turn away thy son from following me, that they may serve other gods. So will the anger of the Lord be kindled against you and destroy thee suddenly. God's very clear warning. God's very clear direction. You are to, to stay separated from this world that you are going to live in. I'm going to give you this land. 
I'm going to help you conquer this land, but I have one stipulation, and that stipulation is that there's not to be an intermarriage. There's not to be a, a, a defiling of, uh, of the, the heart of the people to serve God. Because when you introduce that relationship, all of a sudden now you have a pulling away of the heart from God. And of course, we see this, unfortunately, over and over again in the nation of Israel. We could actually spend all night looking at specific instances, but ones that come to our mind, King Solomon being the the most uh, well-known. He violated God's command, and exactly what God said would happen did happen. And those wives pulled his heart away from serving the Lord. This was their transgression. What they did was very simply this. They married the daughter of a strange God. Now, this is not just marrying outside of the Jewish nation. It's it's like a step further. It's not just a non-Jew. It was ones who were wholeheartedly dedicated to the worship of their gods. It describes uh, the, the, the individual as the daughter of a strange God. Not the daughter of, you know, people around you. But she's wholly dedicated to her idol worship. And she wants a relationship with you. She's okay with the relationship with you, but she's, she ain't giving that up. All right? That's the one non-negotiable, okay? That comes along with. And that's what was, was going on. That's what was taking place. And this was so prevalent that it characterized the entire nation, which is why, verse 11, the nation is addressed. Judah, Israel, Jerusalem. So prevalent, it, it characterized them as a whole. And God was saying, what you're doing, the action that you're taking, is profaning. And two different things. In verse 10, it talks about how it profaned the covenant with God, the covenant of our fathers. And then in verse 11, it profaned the holiness of God. Now that's a pretty strong statement. You have defiled, you have polluted, you have desecrated. That's what the word profane means. My holiness by what you have chosen to do. And then the strongest of all in verse 11, you've committed an abomination. The word abomination means a disgusting thing. God looked at what they were doing and God was disgusted. Because they were very plainly, for their own gain and own benefit, violating God's clear commands. God told them what to do. They said, well, maybe some other time. There's something that I want here, and I'm going to go after it. And you know, you and I, tonight, today, we don't share the same covenant relationship with God. The church is not Israel. We don't take Israel's place. God's going to fulfill all the promises to his people. That's coming. So we don't share that same covenant relationship with God. However, we do have a new covenant relationship with God. Those of you who have been saved, you've experienced the new covenant, the Holy Spirit coming to live inside you as a child of God, as a believer. And you know what? God has some similar stipulations, doesn't he? 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 14. Be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? In the same context, just a verse or two later in verse 17... Come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord. That's the context of that verse. But it's interesting, when when those desires come calling, when those ideas come in our our minds, we say, well, you know, I, I can be an exception to this. Now, this verse isn't specifically talking about marriage. It's talking about intimate relationships. Now, we can have an intimate friendship with someone and violate this this same principle. But how could it not be violated by the most intimate of relationships, the the most close of relationships? And we can see that now when, when we're not being tempted, but when the temptation comes. Here's an option. You say... Pastor Gable, I I I I know what that says, but you, you gotta understand this individual. You gotta understand how nice and kind they are. Boy, they're they're, they're they probably live a lot better than even some people down at church. I've seen the way they talk, and you know, there's got to be an exception. There's not. It says what it says. Be not unequally yoked with unbelievers. And the reason is the same. 
Because the unbeliever has a different worldview. The unbeliever has a different pursuit. The unbeliever has no choice but to walk in the flesh. You and the Holy Spirit of God have a desire to walk in the Spirit. You're going to be going in two different directions. Somebody's got to give. And since you have a flesh pulling the same way, guess what direction you're going to go? God, God clearly laid it out to His people. Now, I got the verse in the wrong spot, but it's helpful for us to consider, why did they do this? We just kind of pass over that part. We're actually given a little bit of a clue here in verse 11, yes, verse 11 towards the end, a little bit of a clue, and then some of the other things are rather obvious. Verse 11, towards the end, it says, you profane the holiness of the Lord, and did you catch that phrase, which he loved? Which he loved. Part of the reason of why they did it was they left their love for God. Loved past tense. It used to be the case, but now not so much. Love of God began to wane, and so love for self and love of pursuing after pleasure began to rise, and that became what the people were pursuing after. So they left their love of God. And then just obvious, if you think long enough about it, we have a group of people who are just simply pursuing their own lusts. Whether that is sexual lust, and it talks about leaving the wife of their youth in order to pursue after these these women from nations that were around them. Remember, this is just a remnant. They are very small. This is just uh, the city of Jerusalem, the the surrounding area. I mean, this is a, a tiny speck on the map because of how God has dealt with them because of their sin, because of being taken into captivity and and many of them having returned. They're they're not near the nation that they once were. And so the temptation is all around them. And they began to look with their eyes. You know, my wife's not exactly as attractive as she used to be. I wonder if there's something better out there. You know, we used to sort of be in love. We used to, you know, share that relationship. But, you know, we've kind of fallen out of love. So, I, I, I love that one. Wouldn't it, be, wouldn't it be okay? We'll just kind of, you know, we'll pursue after that instead. Sexual lust. I think there's also a little bit of social lust involved because you understand that many of these marriages were alliances for safety. Alliances for wealth make this deal so that our family is enriched so we can do business together. Pursuing after their lusts instead of pursuing after their love of God. Does that sound familiar, believers? When we pursue after what we want, our desires, whatever they might be, and we forget our heart grows cool towards our love of God. It's all about priorities. A little bit why they did it. Privilege, the covenant relationship they had. Transgression, and you know what follows transgression and sin, and that is simply judgment. Judgment. Verse 12, the Lord will cut off the man that doeth this, the master and the scholar out of the tabernacles of Jacob, and him that offereth an offering unto the Lord of hosts. There's a judgment. There's a separation, the idea of being cut off. Someone who is within the boundaries. The, the, you could view it as a, as a tent, all right? In enjoying the protection, enjoying the blessings of being inside the tent, the tabernacles of Jacob, as he talks about there. We're within that wonderful covenant relationship, and God said, enough, I'm separating you. You're, you're being pushed outside of the tent of Jacob. There's a separation. And this involves everyone. There's no exception. You're a master. You're a scholar. Doesn't matter how important you might be, there is judgment for sin. There's a separation, then there's also a rejection. Because he talks about him that offereth an offering. I'm not going to receive it. You can give me, you can sacrifice till the cows come home. And if we're not dealing with the problem, then I'm not receiving your offering. That's what he says in verse 12. There's a rejection. This is the treachery in marriage. Which leads right into verse number 13, where we're told this 
he have done again. So they had dealt treacherously in marriage. And then he says, you've dealt treacherously in a much deeper sort of way. They, they did it again. Treachery in marriage was only the beginning. It was only the outward manifestation of a much deeper issue, a much deeper treachery, and that was treachery in divorce. Verse 13, he said, This ye have done again, covering the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping, and with crying out, insomuch that he regardeth not the offering any more, or receive it with, your, with good will at your hand. Yet ye say, Wherefore? God saying, because of this and because of what's really going on, the heart of the matter, I'm rejecting your worship. You know, they're still trying to put on a good face. Everything's good between me and God. Here I am offering my offerings when there's treachery at home. There's sin in the home. Obvious choices of sin. And yet on the outside, everything's whitewashed. Everything everything looks great. Still trying to maintain the outward display of religion. Coming to God with tears and weeping and crying out. This outward show of repentance. Or perhaps it could actually mean, and and I don't know which one. I go back and forth. It could mean the tears and the weeping and the crying out of the family which is being abused. The wife who's being shoved out. The children. It could be that. At the very least, he says at the end uh, end of the verse, "...insomuch that he regardeth not the offering anymore." or receiveth it with goodwill at your hand. God doesn't regard the offering. That means, the word regard means to turn away. Here's here's my offering, God, and God just goes, I don't want any part of it. Regardeth not. And then he says that God will not receive it with goodwill. Idea of goodwill, favor, it's, it's being delighted, it's taking... That's why you were offering the offering in the first place, right? Is to supposedly to bring God pleasure. And God says, I have no pleasure in it whatsoever. I delight in it. I, I, I delight in it in no way whatsoever. It kind of sounds a little bit like what God through the prophet Samuel said to Saul. Remember when Saul didn't do what God told him to do? And the reason why he didn't do it was, hey, we're going to be able to offer these as a sacrifice. And what did Samuel say to Saul? He asks him a rhetorical question. The rhetorical question is, hath the Lord as great delight in birth offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Come on, Saul, you should know the answer to this question. This is an obvious one. But let me just state it straight out. To obey is better than sacrifice and to hearken than the fat of rams. God wants your obedience, not your religion. So often, religion is just, let me do what I want and then appease God at the same time. Let me, let me kind of uh, be able to pursue after what I want. Well, just make God happy. So he'll, so he'll kind of leave me alone, let me do what I want. That's how people, that's how some Christians treat religion. Treat the things that God wants them to do. They say, well, I'll just kind of do my, do my alms, you know. Check the, check the box, get the card punched so I can really go off and do what I want. God wants your obedience, not your religion. So God says, I'm rejecting your worship. And then, of course, in verse 14, they say, why are you doing that, God? Wherefore? Why are you turning away our offerings? What's the reason for this? They really should have known. should not have been a question. So God says, I'm, I'll answer the question. Verse 14 because the Lord hath been witness between thee and the wife of thy youth, against whom thou hast dealt treacherously. God reminds them, I'm rejecting your worship because you have violated your covenant. You have violated your promise. You notice how God deals with his people. He says, I have been a witness. I've been a witness. God's witness. He says, I was there. I saw your vows. And this is idea of more than just seeing as far as like, I was there, I saw it happen. But the idea of a witness, and we kind of fulfilled this function last night, right? You're a legally binding witness. 
They need, a, they need some people to observe the vows because they need some legal witnesses. And it's really nice to get lots of gifts, right? You know, if you're, if you're married, right? They'll invite a lot of people, so get lots of stuff. Not that we, anyone would do that, all right? But you're a legal witness. You're seeing what's going on. And in this case, God's saying, this is my institution of marriage. It's mine. I made it. I get to define it. I was there. I saw what you did. You ever think, why do, why do in, in marriages do we have, you know, an officiant who, who's normally some sort of spiritual leader, pastor, whatever? Why do we have that? Well, in essence, the officiant, the, 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 the person conducting those vows is standing in the stead of God. He's not just the person who stands behind the couple. He is the representative of God Himself. God is witnessing those vows. If you're married here tonight, God was there. Whether or not you realized He was there or acknowledged His presence, God was there. He was a witness to those promises that you made. And He holds you accountable to those promises. Till death do you part. There's an accountability to to the promises that you made. God was saying, I saw your vows. And you know what? Right now, I see the treachery that's going on in your home. I'm witness of the violation of the promise that you made. In other words, what God is saying is you have not only betrayed each other, you have betrayed me. And how you are treating your spouse and how you are ready to dismiss her so that you can go chase after something new and more shiny and, and more attractive, I see it all. I'm watching. I'm witness. And then let me give you a reminder. Not only am I a witness, but I need to remind you of something. Verse 14. Yet is she, your spouse, she is thy companion and the wife of thy covenant. Let me remind you about who that person is that you have just violated, you have dealt, you've just dealt treacherously with her. Let me remind you who she is. She is your companion. The word companion simply means she's your wife. She's the one. She's your companion, the wife of your covenant. Let me remind you that your spouse you chose as your companion. She is your wife. Let me remind you that your spouse is your covenant, your promise, your solemn pledge, your vows. Important to remember. And even in the New Testament, an unbelieving spouse doesn't even annul this covenant. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul clearly lays out, if you have an unbelieving, uh, unbelieving spouse, it's best for you to remain. To not seek... To, be, to separate from that marriage. We say, well, you know, didn't God say, you know, you shouldn't be unequally yoked? So certainly, no, 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 you made a promise. Things are going to be difficult. But that was the choice that you made, the promises that you made. And God's holding you accountable for that. So he reminds them a little bit about their companion and the promises they made. And then verse 15, God lays out the corrupted design He takes the people back to the very beginning, to the Garden of Eden, and asks in verse 15, did he not, did not he make one? Obvious rhetorical question, of course he did. Yet had he the residue of the Spirit, and wherefore one, that he might seek a godly seed. You see, God has a design for marriage. God made it. That is why God gets to define it. That is why God gets to be the one with the instructions to say, this is how marriage is done, and and this is how you should carry yourself within a marriage. He made it. He's the designer. He wrote the instruction manual, and that's the best place we need to go for instructions. And the the reason he gets to do it is because he made it. That's his prerogative, and he had a purpose. And he lays out his purpose In verse 15, he said, did he not make one? You know, the first purpose in marriage, and if you are married here tonight, the purpose in your marriage with your spouse 
is simply this, oneness. God wants you to be one with your spouse. God made, and this is kind of interesting, God made one, and then he made two, and then he made one. God made Adam. Of course, the the search for a companion, the search for a, 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 a help that was meet for him, naming all the animals, searching for the one, and there isn't one, because God wanted Adam to see that all right, nothing is adequate here. You need, you need something from me. So God puts him to sleep, takes that rib, makes one into two, and then he makes two into one. And you'll notice that in the question, it says, or in the statement there in verse 15, it says that he had the residue of the spirit. You say, what in the world is that talking about? Well, residue just simply means remainder. And I think what God is saying is, he's saying, I had the creative power to do whatever I wanted. I could have brought Adam multiple women, but I brought him one. I could have brought him another man, but I brought him a special one. I could have done, I had the remainder of spirit, I could have done whatever I wanted to do, and what I wanted to do was to create male and female in a special way so that they could come together in in marriage and experience oneness, oneness of emotion, uh, spiritual oneness, and yes, physical one, oneness. That is God's design. He made the pieces so that they would go together. And any variation on the design destroys the oneness and any fulfillment that would come out of it. Which is why we have a society that is very frustrated, very angry, very unfulfilled, very depressed. Because we're trying to take God's design and saying, I want to do what I want to do with it. And God says it doesn't work that way. Amen. I designed it as just like the, uh, the, the, the engineer who would create a device. I designed it to work in a certain way. And you're trying to use the screwdriver to nail the nail in. And it doesn't work. It's frustrating. You're probably going to hurt yourself doing it. If not, break the tool. One of the two. God designed for oneness. That's God's will, husband, wife. You sit in this auditorium and you are married. That is God's design. That's God's will for you. To experience that kind of relationship. Oneness. God made one. And then he says, and wherefore one? Why did, what's the oneness all about? Well, he says there in verse 15 that he might seek a godly seed. It's about reproduction. Because faithful marriages create the optimal conditions for healthy children. It's kind of like plants. You've probably seen the the pictures that are out there of maybe a tree or a plant that somehow the seed landed in a strange place, the crack in the sidewalk or on a rock, and maybe that plant split it wide open and was able to survive. But that's the exception, not the rule. You take those same seeds and those plants and you put them in a cultivated garden, one where the soil is cared for, there's proper moisture, there's some mulch to keep the weeds down, there's a a faithful care and tending to the health of those plants, guess what? Now you have a lot better chances of success than planting your garden in the the cracks in your sidewalk up to your house. You're going to have a lot better success. That's That's what's happening here. That's what's going on here. Faithful marriages create the optimal conditions for healthy children. The purpose of the oneness that, that God designed was for reproduction. Now, immediately our minds go to children, and that it does include children. That's the main emphasis. But there, there's two parts of this. This is not just reproducing other human beings. It's not just filling the world with other human beings, but God is seeking a godly seed. Amen. So it's not just a re- reproduction of human life, but it ought to be a reproduction of of you, mom and dad, of our relationship with God in our children. That's a heavy task, a heavy responsibility. The relationship I have with God reproduced, mirror form, in my children. Boy, I know some areas in my spiritual life that are not all they could be. An exact duplicate in my children... Boy, I have some work to do. 
And don't we as parents, we have some work to do. It's not just about having kids and having as many as possible, but it is about reproducing our godly life in their lives. It is about investing in them because that's what God's purpose is. Unfortunately, what's being addressed here, the idea of divorce, the putting away, is now you have the tearing apart of what was one, now back into two. And that destroys the optimal conditions for healthy children. Destroys it. I don't care what Facebook groups or Instagram groups are out there. You can make the two-parent thing work. Bogus. It's false. It's not true. You will not find it in the Bible. And God knows what he's talking about. It destroys it. And what's left behind are damaged children. Which leads into, and and God's going to point out a very interesting perspective on this. Particular perspective from God. Verse 16. For the Lord, the God of Israel, saith that he hateth the putting away. For one covereth violence with his garment, saith the Lord of hosts. This is God's perspective. And he has an assessment on divorce. He has, this is, my, this is the way I look at things. I mean, this is very plain. God says, I hate it. I hate the proud look, the lying tongue, the hands that shed innocent blood, the heart that devises wicked imaginations, the feet that run swiftly to, to, to mischief, and I hate divorce. It goes right in there. God says, I hate it. I abhor it. I detest it. It's an abomination to me. And then God says in verse 16, for one covereth violence with his garment. And you say, what, is, what does that mean? Well, in Old Testament times, the covering of the garment, the idea of maybe we could picture it as, as a coat where you kind of bring someone in and with your coat, you, you bring them to yourself and you protect them. You give them warmth. You give them love. You cherish them. This, this, is, uh, um, this is the picture in Ruth. Some of you are familiar with that story when Ruth comes to, to Boaz and, and she says, cover now the, the, your, your maiden with, with your garment. You say, what, what is that? What's going on there? It's just a picture. She's asking him, would you, would you care for me? Would you receive me as your wife? Would you love me? And God says divorce. Instead of being the care that one receives the warmth, the tenderness, the love. Divorce is covering over violence. Violence. You know, God sees divorce as violence to those that are involved and especially the children that are involved. It does damage to them. We talk a lot now about how it's Specific forms of speech are violence. You know what is violence? Divorce. That's what violence is. Of course, the people in listening to that, they, they were probably a lot like the Pharisees. Well, doesn't the law talk about divorce? I remember Deuteronomy 24. Didn't, didn't God give some, uh, give some leeway for a divorce? Didn't he say sometimes it's okay? All right, well, let's go to Jesus and and get his explanation because he probably has the best explanation. Mark chapter 10. Turn there with me. Mark 10. We're almost done. Mark chapter 10. Look there at verse number 2. Mark 10, verse 2. The Pharisees came to him, to Jesus, to ask him, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife? Tempting him. He doesn't quibble over the little details. The immediate answer in verse 3, What did Moses command you? Tell me what the law says. And they said, Moses suffered to write a bill of divorcement and to put her away. They're missing a large piece, by the way. And we don't have time to go to Deuteronomy 24 and lay that out. They're missing a very big piece, which is why this is a temptation. Jesus skirts around what they're trying to do. Verse 5 He says, for the hardness of your heart, 
he wrote you that precept. But from the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh. So then they are no more twain, but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. Jesus said there is a provision there. You didn't properly define the provision, but there is a provision there. And the reason for it to be there was not my design, was not my purpose, but it was to deal with the hardness of your heart. In Matthew 5, verse 32, same incident, Jesus says, I say unto you that whosoever shall put away his wife, saving for the cause of fornication, causeth her to commit adultery. And whosoever shall marry her that is divorced, committeth adultery. Some people are like, aha, aha, so there is a cause. There is a reason for a divorce. Now, you've just demonstrated the hardness of man's heart. Ah, oh, there's a way I can get what I want. There's a very purpose, there's a very real and defined provision that's there. But that is not God's design. It's to deal with man's sin. So God has an assessment. And you know what? It's been fairly negative tonight. Let's go back to Malachi. We want to end on a bit more of a positive note. And I think there is some help for us here. Notice how God ends verse 16, and this is actually a repetition of the same phrase from a little bit from, from verse 15, the verse prior. This is our help. This is God's admonition for us. Therefore, said all this to say this. Therefore, take heed. Take heed to your spirit that ye deal not treacherously. Take heed to your spirit. Pay attention to the attitude that you are conveying, that you have in your home. There is a spirit of divorce. That's the spirit that we need to look for. Like all sin, which is transgressing God's clear boundaries and God's instructions, like all sin, it starts in the heart. It starts in our spirit. Pay attention to your spirit. In verse 15, he talks about the oneness of the design, the, the, the seeking of a godly seed. And he says again, Therefore, take heed to your spirit and let none deal treacherously against the wife of his youth. Take heed to your spirit. In other words, God has just got done dealing with his design. Take heed to your spirit that you make God's design your design. What are you after in your marriage? What are you looking for? What do you want? And oftentimes we can start thinking, oh, here's all the things I want for my spouse. Is your purpose and your desires what God desires, what He wants? Is your purpose God's purpose? Because God's purpose is oneness. God's purpose is unity. God's purpose is a godly seed. We take heed to our spirit by making God's design our design. God's design our desire, and we pursue after that. Verse 16, take heed to your spirit that you deal not treacherously. This is the idea of treating each other according to God's design. We don't have time to, to go there. You're familiar with the passage. What is God's design and how we are to treat each other? Ephesians chapter 5. There's a clear command for us as husbands. Love your wives. We understand what love means. We could give a definition. But husbands, how many times do we miss actually applying what love means? Love means putting someone else's needs, desires, in front of your own. Love in that biblical sense is a servant leader. And husbands, that is what we should be. We should lead and serve like Jesus led and served. And what an example He laid for us when He washed the disciples' feet as a servant. He took upon Him the, the form of a servant. 
was made in the likeness of men so that he could put our needs above his own. That's how he loved. Husbands, do we love in the same way? Wives, the design is the same. Wives, submit yourselves. Now, you know that, but how easy is it to talk down your husband in front of your children? How easy is it to criticize and throw stones in front of other people who, because you're frustrated and you've had enough? That's dealing treacherously. That's not taking heed to your spirit. It takes some attention. It takes some, whoa, 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 whoa. I know I want to. I know, I, want, I know there's some things I want to say, but God's design for me is to submit. My, God's design for me is to show reverence. Now, we can object to that all we want, but that's still God's design. And when we choose to violate that design, we're dealing treacherously with our spouse. Take heed to your spirit. Pay attention. You might be sitting here and saying, well, none of this applies to me because, you know, I'm not married. Well, think about where this all goes. The core issue was people who fell out of love, if I could use that term, you understand what I mean, who left their love for God and started pursuing their own lusts. And that we all tend to do. That we all get sucked into. Walking in the flesh instead of walking in the Spirit. And when we walk in the flesh, Galatians 5 tells us all the things that we should expect when we walk in the flesh. Our only hope of true love, which is the first fruit of the Spirit, is to take heed to our spirit that we walk in the Spirit. That applies whether you're married or whether you never will be married. We can all take something away. Take heed to your spirit that you deal not treacherously. Treachery in the home was one of the main reasons that God said, enough, I'm done. God watches what we see and how we conduct ourselves in the home. And God will hold us accountable. And we need to remember that.